0: Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross and it is time for the traditional first Monday of a major mailbag where I answer as always, just like a normal mailbag, your observations, your inquiries, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. The only difference is it is the Monday Match Analysis always on the first week of a major uh, I am also live at the moment I wasn't really planning on going live but I decided to do it uh, last minute saves me some work on the back end having a post this it'll be already be up and it's a nice little treat for those of you who have uh, tuned in on YouTube which I'm sure at this point in the video won't be a lot uh, but um, thought that would be a fun thing to do. Uh, I'm not going to read live chats, but if you leave a super chat, then maybe I will get to it. No obligation to do that. But um, I'm going to I have plenty of comments uh, from the YouTube community tab and from my Twitter handle at Gil underscore gross. I feel a lot better today. I feel even better than I did when I recorded the preview in terms of my my health. If you tuned into the preview, you know that uh, I, I haven't been feeling well. And even when I did that preview, my brain felt like incredibly foggy. And I think only one of you guys commented that you could tell. So uh, that's good. Fought through it. You know, sometimes you got to take the court. You got to play the match. You got to give it 100%. And you don't have your A-plus stuff. You know, that's just how it is sometimes. And you got to fight through it. Uh, so that is uh, that is exactly what I did. So uh, without further ado, let's get to the first comment. It comes from Nunya, B- Nunya Biz. Nunya Business. Okay. Uh, what does team have to do to win another match? Going back to last year, it's a 10 match losing streak for Dominic Team, it is a seven match losing streak uh, since coming back. Uh, I am going to just pull up the the losses um, just so we have a full picture here. So he loses to Marco chechenato last week in Geneva. That's a terrible loss uh, because chechenato has barely won anything all season long. Uh, at Roland Garros, first round he lost to Hugo Delian. Uh, he's a dark, you know, he was a dark horse in my preview. I like Hugo Delian. But team lost 6-3, 6-2, 6-4, wasn't particularly close. I lost to Murray in Madrid, 6-3, 6-4. I mean, uh, Murray on clay, given how he's been playing. Uh, Benjamin Bonzi, John Millman in Belgrade was a really bad loss. He went down to the Challenger to play one event in Marbella, Spain, and lost to the world number 228. So not only, I mean, it's been, it's been brutal it's been really really rough he's a total shell of himself and you know the simple answer what does team have to do to win another match well first of all the the thing that's standing out about his tennis right now is he's not hitting the ball hard you know you can you can kind of simplify tennis sometimes to a couple of main pillars i'll say how much are you hitting the ball in how how fast are you and how hard are you hitting the ball you know you can kind of strip it down to to a foundational thing and you get to a couple uh, a couple of factors there and and one of the things that team always had even you know above his peers above his top 10 peers was just how fast and how hard he hit the tennis ball and that's just not the case right now his power is not is non-existent and uh, that kind of takes away who he is as a tennis player and what makes him good. Like, sure, there were other things he did well uh, on the court. His, you know, his kick serve is is really nice. I love it. Uh, he moves he moves well. He got to a place where he became very consistent. But come on, what made Dominic team great? It was his absolute bazooka killer fireball hammer terrifying forehand and his backhand was pretty darn big also so he needs to get back to that point where he's hitting the ball huge and what team has said is um team has said that it's a confidence thing that in practice he's hitting the ball big and he's hitting the ball fine but he gets on the match and he just can't do it so what that tells me is what he needs to do is go down to the challenger level, get to a point where he's playing matches that somehow don't— where he doesn't feel as much pressure. Somehow he needs to get to that point. And, and maybe it's not going to be the first challenger tournament he plays. Uh, maybe not the second, but maybe the third. He can finally relax out there and start to feel— Uh, remind himself what it feels like to be in a match that matters and to to hit big again. Worst case scenario, doomsday case, is that the mobility in his wrist or the strength in his wrist is is gone, and that's why his power is not in a good place. Hope that's not the case, and I trust that's not the case because that's not really what team is saying. Super chat from Gold Wolf. Thank you for that. Uh, when are we going to play Gilly Bob? Uh, don't be a wuss man. You let yourself get punked by Philly. I don't even know who that is. Um, I and and yeah, uh, OK. I, I don't know what to say. You've left me speechless. Uh, but thank you for the super chat. I'm down. I'm down is I guess the answer. That's my answer. If you want to play, you know, you. Name a location, as Habib Nurmagomedov uh, famously once said. All right, next question comes from Philip. I'm going to get to Twitter about midway through. Uh, Gil, do you see someone on the tour right now, not counting Nadal and Djokovic, who is slash could be a difficult matchup for Alcaraz in the future? How would you design a player who would have a good chance of beating him? Is there some kind of algorithm or plan to counter Carlitos? And then uh, Phillip's going to weigh in here, so let's read that. I think the plan should be uh, stand close to the baseline and try to absorb that pace without sacrificing court position. Uh, Don't let him kill you with drop shots. Trade with good depth until you get an attackable ball or he makes an unforced error. I think he gets frustrated uh, if he's not directing the point or bullying his opponent. Avoid approaching the net unless he's in a really difficult position to counterattack or pass. Uh, Great volleying would also really help. Well, I mean that's not a okay. Let me start by saying this. The problem with creating a game plan for Alcaraz is the same thing as creating a game plan for for Djokovic, which is like this is a player who doesn't really have a lot of uh a lot of clear weaknesses and and the same is true for for most great players, Federer and Nadal included, I think with Djokovic it's a little bit more pronounced uh, in the sense that like you you really don't game plan. Like I don't I I you know there are things that can be done, uh, but it's not it's not really like a there's no signature patterns really that that you would point to. Anyway, um, you know now Djokovic's strengths might be less pronounced than than some of Federer or Nadal, you know, Federer's serve strength or Nadal's forehand strength. But that's another story. I don't want to get into that. But that's how it kind of balances it out. Uh, For Alcaraz, the the first problem with game planning him is there is not a clear weakness here. (laughs) So that's going to be a problem. Uh, However, there are there are things that I think might work best. Now, first of all, what I want to point out about the description that, that Philip offers here, which is stay on the baseline to counter the drop shots and try to absorb the pace and to keep the ball deep in the court and move the ball around. That's kind of Ketsmanovich's game. Um, there's not a lot of finishing power, you know, raw finishing power with Ketsmanovich, but he moves the ball and he keeps it deep and his pace absorption is incredible. Uh, and in in that sense, you know, Ketsmanovic is probably the best lower level player who I think has competed with Alcaraz while Carlos is not spraying unforced errors like he did against Corda in the wind in Monte Carlo. Uh, so so that's interesting. Ultimately, I think the answer kind of is you need to get you need to to obviously keep the ball deep in the court so that he does not because he attacks short balls too well now that's a game plan against freaking everybody but you, you can't drop the ball short uh you want to keep him on the move um and i think i think you just need to keep his offense at bay and and that's that's the best thing that you can do against him and then yeah you do need to address the drop shots or or he'll kill you there Uh, you in terms of the serve you know there might be things you can do to try to take away the the wide serve on the ad side uh, and make him beat UT that you know because that that wide serve on the ad side is the is the reliable serve the t serve is the lower percentage so you can take away the high percentage i mean i could kind of go on and on with little details but man it's pretty hard to come up with a good answer right now for how to game plan against alcaraz when his weaknesses are so unclear next one from idc why doesn't novak try to slice back while returning kick serve Serves some do that, but I think I've never seen Nole doing it yet. But he always seems to struggle with the kicker. Is there a reason other than he just wants to be uh, on top of the point already? Certainly. I mean, Djokovic—that's his worst return. You know, backhand returning the kick serve on the backhand on clay. That's by far his worst worst return. I think it's a great idea. Now, why doesn't Novak slice that back? Because he doesn't really slice his return, and he doesn't slice his return because he has a, an amazing power obviously to hit through the return really hard and really fast but um, I'll I'll get into this but you know when he played Alcaraz in Madrid anyone who, who watched my breakdown of that match you, you know where I stood on that match you know it lost Djokovic the match it lost Djokovic the match that he couldn't win a point whenever Alcaraz hit a kick out wide on the ad side so now I think okay Might Novak, might slicing have some advantages? And I think yes, because it gives him time to recover to the middle so that he can defend the plus one, uh, whether it come on the forehand or the backhand, hopefully the backhand. Um, And Alcaraz couldn't really serve volley as long as Djokovic stands up um, on the baseline it would be difficult for Alcaraz to serve volley as long as Djokovic stands up on the baseline uh, to return that serve. So uh, I think it's a good idea. I don't think Novak will really do it because I've never seen him do it. So until he shows me that that's in the the repertoire, and that's not to say that if he wants to do it, it wouldn't be really fast for him to figure it out because obviously he's got a solid slice backhand, so it wouldn't take him that long. But he'd have to go to the practice court And and work on that. And I'm not sure he's ready to do that. But he will have a plan. And that will be the key if he meets Alcaraz. Is what will be his plan to deal with that kick serve out wide. And not get destroyed on either the serve and volley if he drops back. Or the plus one if he stays in. All right, From, I think a Greek viewer, based on the last name. Yaris. I don't know, uh, Zaris, maybe, uh, Gil, would you consider abandoning the prediction part of your pre-tournament analysis? I know of course that many people like the speculation, but to me, at least it doesn't matter at all. I feel the same applies for you. I think the power rankings more or less reflect your predictions. I'm glad I'm glad you asked this and, and, uh, cause it's been on my mind a little bit recently. Uh, how I feel about the predictions. I have such a love-hate relationship with it, but uh, it is my least favorite part of the job. It is. And that is just mostly because of kind of, I guess, you know, it's the only part of my job that I really feel like uh, I can, you know, there's like a scorekeeping aspect to it, like a right or a wrong, uh, where... Other things, it's like disagree or agree, and it's kind of like okay, whatever. Uh, yeah, it's the reason why I do it is because you love it, uh, and I don't hate it enough not to do it. It's just my least favorite. Uh, for for, and you know what? Part of that is probably the response to it, where like when people take it the right way, which is like the reasoning is what counts or the expectations are proper which is that i'm not i'm not a psychic and no one predicts sports all that well the best the best of the best in the gambling industry uh are correct like 60% of the time so like most people are good about it but like do i hate when do i you know is it is it more stressful for me because like i feel a little bit of heat when it comes to that. Yeah. Um, would I consider stopping right now? No, because people like it. So, and, and I like it too, you know, sometimes it's also a rush to, to keep a rooting interest. I talked about on a couple of mailbags back how I I don't root for players anymore, except I do want to be right when I predict. So, you know, maybe it's nice to kind of keep some, some of that rush going. So I don't know. And you know, yeah. I mean, I think I do decently on them. It just depends on what your prediction, on what your expectations are. Some people just have outsized expectations of how often I should be right. Most of those people aren't gamblers, because most betters know how hard it is. Uh, but some people, um, who, again, I think they're mostly, mostly they don't bet. They think I should be right uh, to a ridiculous. Uh, at a ridiculous frequency, it's just never going to happen. So I always say good luck finding someone who's going to be right as much as you want me to be right. Um, here's Joe. What do you think happened with Karen Hatchinov's development around 2018-19? With the multiple titles, including the Paris Masters and the quarterfinal at the French Open, vaulting him to a top 10 ranking, he seemed like he would be a real contender for years to come, but he's really done the exact reverse. How did this all happen? What exactly went wrong? He's now established himself as a decent player who consistently makes a good third or fourth round at every slam, but I think we're all expecting a little bit more from him. I get he got the silver medal at the last Olympics, but he can't consistently challenge the top guys like he seemed he was poised to do back in the day. I really love his style, and I want him to do well, and I would love to hear your thoughts. Cheers. Hachinov, man, yeah. Uh, He has been hovering, I think, between 20 and 30 for like three years. Um, And... What's crazy about that Paris final in 2018 is it took them until the start of this season to make another ATP-sanctioned final. It was in the gold medal match in Tokyo, and God, that tournament was so weird and crazy. I mean, the conditions were so bizarre that I, I think from a tennis perspective, um, I, it kind of takes away from what it meant for me just because of the humidity and the bounciness of the court was insane. Anyway, uh, and Hatchinov's a great high ball hitter, by the way. That's one of his main strengths, and the lower it gets, the the weaker he is. Although he's been nice at Wimbledon. Um, here's the thing with Hatchinoff, Okay, let's just get to the evaluation thing. What I kind of want from him, and most people think about his forehand and his janky technique and the fact that he gets rushed on his forehand and he doesn't move into the court and and hit good good midcourt forehands which he doesn't finish that well with his forehand especially when he gets inside the court he doesn't have good feel on it uh, i think his his nerves are not great he does get nervous sometimes and 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 tight which um can can affect his ability to win tight matches sometimes but ultimately the thing for me is he should serve bigger like if That's my main critique for him. Is you are six foot six, you have a lot of, you know, you have a very good, solid build to you. You're not quite as fast as Zverev and Medvedev, but you might be. He might be heavier than Zverev and Medvedev, and I'd love, you know, maybe I'll check the listed weights here. Why don't you serve like them? I understand that not everybody six foot five, six foot six can, but like that's the missing piece and now you kind of zoom out and you know you look at a six foot six player that i was at first in awe of his movement because it was good um now that was before it became a little bit more normalized for a guy of his size to move as well uh by the way his listed weight is 192 um i don't know how accurate these things are zverev is 198 yeah right yeah right i don't no, I'm sorry, but Hachinov Zverev does not weigh more than Hatchinov. Am I right or, or am I wrong? You guys can weigh in, I guess, in the live chat. And then I guess let's see what Medvedev is. Medvedev is 182. Okay, fair enough. Um, I mean, Hatchinov's not that big in the upper body, but he's pretty big in the lower body. Uh, yeah, like you zoom out. It's like, what is Hatchinov great at? Is he great defensively? No, he's good for his height. Is he consistent? Uh, like, ultra-consistent, I I guess, but, like, he's not a great grinder because he's just not... He doesn't move well enough. He's not mobile mobile enough. So you need to be a great offensive player. Like, you need to play big-man tennis. And is his forehand good enough to do that? Not really. Is his serve good enough to do that? Not really. So what is he? He's a player who is just a little bit... a little bit mid in too many areas. And that's kind of... Yeah, he is solid, he is consistent, he is a top 30 guy, he's going to be there for a long time. Um but as far as like why can't he be in the top 10? Like talk to me when. I don't I think the forehand's a lost cause because of the technique. I don't think that gets any better. The serve though, I I I'm really thinking that that might be his ticket to take the next jump, to take the leap. Uh, I think that needs to get better for Hatchinoff. So, hope that answered the question well. Uh, let me take a moment to just check on the live chat. Lots of love for the predictions. See, I, I know, I know that they are popular and I will continue to do them. And I don't hate them. If I, if I really hated them, then I'd stop. It's just my least favorite among all the things. Uh, okay. Uh, Let's go to Machayic. Uh, What would need to happen so that players do not retire at such a young age as Ash Barty? Um, the calendar would need to be way friendlier for players. Like I laugh so hard at what's happening in the NBA compared to what happens in tennis. NBA players have, I believe, like if you lose in the regular season, it's probably a seven or eight month season. I think it's a seven or eight month season. They don't want to play back-to-back games. So Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, took away back-to-back games. They are still resting in the regular season in the NBA. They don't want to play. Long story short, um, you throw in travel, the the just and and the length of the the schedule being 11 months out of the year if, if you don't want the ash party thing to happen and if you want players to to uh play for longer even though players are starting to players are starting to just make their own calendar uh like the big three have uh that's what you'd have to do plain and simple uh VTech. Do you think Federer will retire this year, for example, in Basel? I don't know. I hate to speculate on that kind of thing. Uh, number two is, I'm interested in the topic of Tennis Hall of Fame. What should the threshold of entry into it be? Should Vavrinka, Chilich team, and Medvedev get in? Medvedev, if he didn't win every anything else for the rest of his career. I'm not a big Tennis Hall of Fame guy, and I think there's a lot of tennis fans who just don't really engage with it as much. Whereas, I think in in other sports i think particularly uh american football and 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 baseball uh there's a lot more engagement with who's a hall of famer and who's not and a lot more debate i don't know why that is maybe because tennis is uh a more objective sport with the one-on-one nature maybe that's it that it just doesn't excite people maybe it's because it's so international and it's an american thing Uh, i don't know if it's an american thing maybe it is Uh, obviously the hall of fames in newport um So I've never really concerned myself too much with that kind of thing. But like off the top of my head, I always like Hall of Fames when they're more restrictive. That, you know, it becomes more special that way. Uh, I think to be in the Hall of Fame, you should have either been, you should have won a slam for sure. Um, I think if you get to number one, I think that is a big deal. Uh, and then if you don't have either of those things, then I'd say you need like seven, maybe, maybe five, five to eight year end top tens. And then you're also probably a pretty, pretty solid hall of famer, but Uh, You know, it goes off precedent. So you got to kind of look at who's been in. So uh, and then I don't know, like maybe 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 a guy like uh, like team. Who, as we stand, has only had like a two year prime where he won a slam. Like maybe that should be one of the exceptions where where maybe he's not a Hall of Famer. But I've never been too passionate about this. So uh, I don't have much more, you know, I'm not very authoritative on, um, on the hall of fame thing, but you know, probably like a Joel Drucker, Joel Drucker or Steve Flink, you know, who has this big kind of bigger, larger historical context. Maybe, maybe I could talk to them about what makes a hall of famer, uh, from EB. Why do you think there, uh, hasn't been more of an effort by the tours to create a master's 1000 on grass and why isn't the grass season longer extended deeper into July I just want to stop right there I mean I tend to ignore most questions about grass um, until grass season in the mailbag but I get questions about grass year-round folks like always and I can't tell why that is but there are two theories it's either that people love grass that grass is a big deal and that the tours need more grass because people love it and they're interested in it and fascinated in it I swear to God I do not get questions all year about clay and hardcore like I do grass and Wimbledon it could be also a result of grass being so novel in the calendar really only 3 weeks a year maybe that is why it's so interesting and if grass were expanded people would be much less interested in it so i don't know it's a chicken or, or the egg thing and um it's you know i'm i like grass like i think it's a great change up i think it's aesthetically pleasing that counts for something um i i'm all for obviously just a lot of variation in surface speed throughout the calendar. That's kind of my thing and what I advocate for. That's my only agenda when it comes to this thing. Uh, But in terms of why there's no masters 1000, first of all, I think there should be, and I think it should be in Hamburg, Germany. And I, and Hamburg is the week after Wimbledon and it's on clay. And uh, I think they have the facilities to do it. That used to be a masters. And I, you know, I, I think that's, that's the move. I hope that happens. I don't know how much momentum there is for it, though. Question from Jared Gonzalez. Uh, Can you give us a breakdown of these players and their potential ceilings? Jack Draper, Francisco Sarundolo, uh, Miramir Ketsmanovic, and Yuri Lahechka. I've done Draper on a mailbag recently. Uh, I just want him to get better on the run. I think he's really good from the middle of the court with set feet, good serve, plus one. And uh, I like his swagger and his confidence on the court. I'm a fan of Draper. Uh Sarundalo, I mean what stands out to me is his forehand. Uh, he's got more firepower than his brother. His brother's younger than him, but I do like Francisco a little bit better than than Juan Manuel. Uh, I I need to see You know, results-wise, I feel like that Miami semifinal was kind of the Red Sea opening up for him when it comes to his draw, so that was great, but I I also need to see more results from Sarundalo, and I need to see him play top players more, Uh, and then I'll get a better idea, and I'll be more interested. I don't think I've watched him with that much of a critical eye, and uh, the Rude match is so unmemorable to me in that semifinal in Miami that uh, I don't even remember exactly how I felt about Sarundalo's performance in that match. Uh, Ketmanovic, Ketmanovic, I love. Uh, he doesn't have a blow you off, blow you out of the water uh, power or a serve. So we'll see what kind of ceiling that puts on on his game. And I don't know, I don't know how how far he can go without upping his ground stroke speed and his serve speed even more than he has. He's already worked on that, uh, but ultimately. Like, the man's a tremendous baseliner with the way he absorbs pace, the way he changes direction, fantastic timing. Um, and awesome court position takes a lot of time away. And and that's a really, really good way to make up for the lower ground stroke speed, a la David Gaffan, a la David Nalbandian, his coach. And uh, that stuff is really good. Yuri Lahetchka. Um... Yeah, I watched him in his run in in Rotterdam where he beat Chap of No, did he beat Ch- Yeah, yeah, he beat Chap um he beat I want to say Botic, Van de Zanskulp. I think he beat him too. Uh, it was an awesome run. Um but I don't have that much to say about him at at this point. Uh he was he was quick around the court he was willing to move forward. I thought his volleys were were really good. Um and he was very even off of both wings. I remember that too. It wasn't he wasn't very uh very forehand or backhand centric, but yeah, that's all I have to say about him. From JJ Birchfield, I'd like to talk about someone who completely disappeared recently, Alexi Popperin. What the hell happened? Yeah, I mean, he he uh I don't want to talk about Alexi Popper, and no, no, no disrespect, but yeah, I mean, you're right. He's got a lot of firepower, but you have to. Uh, first of all, his backhand is a, a total mess. I mean, it's it's a very, very much a liability, and uh, the forehand can be wild. So uh, the serve is big, but is it is it elite enough to to make up for someone who doesn't move great, doesn't have a very good backhand, and the forehand? I don't think it's on the the level of like his player comp needs to be like Matteo Berrettini and the forehand isn't on that level so uh I don't I don't know what the expectation should be for Alexi Popperin I'm not sure I uh, would also like your opinion on the players who are hurt the most from Wimbledon dropping rankings points Nole Matteo Fucevic. uh throw Dennis in there by the way who I I didn't name drop in my um in my video about Wimbledon dropping the points but throw Dennis Shapovalov in there for sure uh, let me go to the rankings real quick, and just take a look at this so so that we can get a good idea. So so first of all, Djokovic will drop two thousand points, and that would put him at number three right now, uh, because Zverev and Medvedev. Uh, I think he would go under both of them as we stand right now, um, and of course, Djokovic is defending championship points at Roland Garros, so uh, he's got he's got to win in order to not lose points. Uh, Now you go to Berrettini, and Berrettini has, Berrettini's got 3,800 points, so 3,800 points, and Wimbledon is 1,200 of those. So, I mean, man, that is, like, that's almost a quarter of his points, right? But, That looks like, yeah, that looks like he drop outside of like the top 15, I want to say. I don't know if it would be quite that extreme. Um, It would hurt a lot of people real bad. Though, I mean, obviously, because going to like, we're we're used to the drop of someone getting upset in the early round, but usually they don't put up a zero spot. Anyway, yeah, it's going to affect them. I don't know. I don't know what more to say. Uh, than that, but there are more questions. In fact, let me go to Twitter now. Let me pull up my my tweet where uh, I asked for some replies and 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 let's get into that. So uh, I asked for my Twitters at Gil underscore gross. you can go ahead and follow. I'm gonna try to get to these uh, pretty quickly. Uh, from Sharif, do you think TT Pas is ever gonna win the French open? yeah, I would I would guess that he would at some point, yeah. Uh, he's got a lot of years as a top contender. Um, from John, Dominic team going to the challenger tour. Will that help him or hurt? I think it'll help. Um, Stucky, my friend, Stucky, he, he does amazing work. I mean, what a action he He writes for the action network Man's a tremendous, uh, just a, a really good for any, if you like betting on sports, you got to follow Stucky, uh, set the over under for Alcaraz career slams. Right now, I would set it at. I'd probably set it at fifteen at the moment. I I'd set it at like just beyond Sampras. I think that's my number at the moment. Now, I I mean, that's such a it's such a crazy thing to try to make any sense out of that. I'm not even gonna try. So I'll just give you the number and leave it at that. Uh, Vakash Kumar. Gil, I saw your take on ATP's position of stripping Wimbledon rankings points, and I agree it's the logical move would be to carry forward to freeze twenty twenty one points. And that's my question: Were the players consulted? Why is there no scrutiny on player council? Shouldn't Federer and Nadal answer that question? Well, what was the involvement of the players? the The ATP didn't really say uh, they in their FAQ. Uh, they actually did have a section um, they did have a section where they addressed that. Uh, the question was how much involvement did the players have in this decision to remove points from Wimbledon And their answer and I'll read it it said we've had extensive consultation with the player council which represents the interests of the wider player group as well as Russian and Belarusian players. In general, our conversations have stressed, that this is a time to put self-interest to one side and to understand the broader picture for tennis. Of course, we know that not all players will agree with the position we've taken. Obviously, that includes Ukrainian players who are upset with the decision. Uh, the, the, the last sentence was not part of what the ATP said. That was me adding on. Look, the, because the player council has no communication, no means of communication, um, we don't know where they stand on this and we don't you know we, we don't know their position now their position should definitely be if it's like any other body to support the players you support your weakest and most vulnerable members and in that case that is the the Russian and Belarusian players and any player who could in the future be barred from playing a tournament because of their nationality and the precedent that that sets which means that the player council should 100% be for um in support of stripping Wimbledon's points. I'm just telling you, based on what players' associations and you know player representatives do, their job is to support the most, most vulnerable and sanctioned party, right? And in this case, it's players being banned from a tournament here. So... Um, in that sense, they need to support it. But in terms of what to do with the rankings points, I have no idea. I I don't I don't know if they were consulted or not. Uh, you know, there is obviously uh, Federer and Nadal on the player council. Some people saying uh, that's a well, that that is a conflict of interest um, in terms of like wanting you know. To hurt Djokovic in that sense. However, how much power do they have? That is extremely questionable in terms of what is done with the ranking. Extremely questionable, and uh, also in terms of this whole thing, this whole entire thing being about Novak Djokovic. That's absurdity. Uh, I just, I, I, just think that's absolute absurdity to think, uh, to think that the world revolves around Djokovic to the extent that Wimbledon. First of all, it came from the U.K. government. So the U.K. government is so concerned about Djokovic that they pressured Wimbledon into banning Russians and Belarusians. And then the the ATP and the WTA, by the way, which shouldn't care about Djokovic at all, said, you know what? Good idea. This is great. It positions us perfectly to, to F Djokovic uh, and to strip the rankings points away from Wimbledon so that he's not number one. And and that was the grand plan all along. If and by the way, we needed a war, an invasion rather, of Russia into Ukraine for all this to happen. All of this is to take Djokovic away from number one, and that is what some people want to believe. This is not about Djokovic. It's just not about him. Uh he get he got effed. You know he he. Look. So did Ila Timjanovic. So did Matteo Berrettini. So did Denis Shapovalov. Um, and so did Hubert Herkacz. And so did, I'm sure, a bunch of other players who are going to suffer from this. This is not about Novak Djokovic. Um, Sorry. Back to Twitter. I feel bad for Djokovic and I don't support the the decision, but it's, it's not about him. Right. All right. Um, New Day. Do you think Wimbledon could retali- retaliate against being sanctioned by the ATP and WTA by completely disregarding ATP and WTA rankings when it comes to seedings? For instance... In what will no doubt be Federer's final season, could they award him a top four seeding spot in 2023? I don't think that that would be like, you know, shoving it up the ATP's you-know-what to disregard their rankings and to seed whatever they want. In fact, they, they already did that for a number of years. I don't think the ATP cares at all if they do that. So, no, I don't think that would be an effective way uh, of getting back at all. Uh, What makes a good grass court player? Yeah, I I don't want to answer that right now. It's time for clay Uh, for pure entertainment value, not predictive. Who do you think would be the most entertaining RG final? Uh, Great question. Great question. Um, I mean. God, that is uh, that's tough. mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for a dollar49 perfect with our classic fries price and participation may vary cannot be combined with any other offer I, I I struggle to get creative here you know I I kind of I struggle to get creative on this answer um is like what's the most competitive? I, I, I think Tsitsipas on the bottom half, I, I'm looking at the players who I could, like, here's my here's my quarterfinal on the bottom half. Rude, Herkoch, Demon, Tsitsipas, Rublev, Sinner, Karenio Busta, and Ketsmanovic. Like, would I be excited to see a final uh, or particularly excited to see a final with any of those guys who aren't Stefano Tsitsipas? Definitely not. So Tsitsipas on the bottom half, and then on the top half, I'm thinking like, what's the most entertaining head-to-head with uh, with Tsitsipas? And um, I mean, honestly, Djokovic, Nadal, and Alcaraz have all collectively kind of um, handled him. Uh, however, the Alcaraz matches have been the most fun. I think for for t- for me as a a tennis hipster. Uh, a total tennis hipster, I think for the Alcaraz-Citipas, for an Alcaraz-Citipas final to be first major winner for for whoever wins, the 3-0 head-to-head, and given how awesomely entertaining and high quality the matches have been anyway when when uh, Alcaraz and Pass have played, that probably has to be my answer in terms of that also being a more unpredictable uh, and tough-to-call final than if it were to be Djokovic and Nadal I, I'd i worry that we kind of get more of what we've already seen. Uh, we get kind of a, you know, not that it can't be a great match and not that Pass couldn't pull off the upset because he's a, a, again, a tier one player right up there with him. Uh, but yeah, I think my answer would probably be Alcaraz Tsitsipas, actually. All right, I got to get through these quicker. Um. Do you worry uh team's moment might have come and gone? Yeah, if I, I almost feel like if you're not worried about team right now, you're kind of lying to yourself. I can't bring myself to be like, yeah, everything's totally fine. This is completely normal. No, I, I can't. Um, Novak Goat, what can be done to change the ATP's decision to drop last year's points from Wimbledon? The decision is scandalous. Points should be frozen uh, for Russian players or everyone. I don't know. I don't I don't know if it's reversible. Uh, more questions I I look forward to more questions being asked um uh, about this, about about why they didn't freeze uh the points. I do. Oops. Um oops. I didn't mean to do that. Uh, there has been an evolution of clay court tennis. All three surfaces these days are more similar than the stark contrast of the old days. Clay was much slower and grass was much faster. Do you agree? Yes, it's indisputable. If yes, why is it that way? Well, the grass got slower. Um, I don't know if the clay got faster. I think it. I think it might be string technology changing the way uh, clay is being played on. I'm. I'm not sure, but. Uh, yeah, and I'm also not an expert on why this has happened. In fact, uh all I can say is it's it's very very clear and as a result, you know, Federer and and Djokovic haven't had to change their games much surface to surface. They can just do their thing. They can just play their games and they can be great and they all have been great on all three surfaces. I mean, and and that's not even a controversial statement in the slightest, you know. If you want to say Federer hasn't been great on clay, that's blasphemous. How many Roland Garros finals has he been to? Five. Uh, so yeah, I mean, and and he's won it. Uh, that is, he has been, he has been great, as has Djokovic, as has Nadal on grass, um, et cetera, et cetera. They have all been great on every surface. But it's easier to do that now than it was back in the day. Uh, that's you know. It's not quite Borg going from playing average seven-ball rallies on clay to serve volleying at Wimbledon. It just isn't like that anymore. Do you think uh, if Rafa's foot is fine, he can find a similar level to what he did at the beginning of the season? Yeah, of course. Of course I think that. Um Another question about team. Um, why do you think the big two... Hold on, I'm going to scroll down. The big two. <laughs> uh, why do you think the big two have gotten better on their less favored surfaces as they've aged? Uh, Rafa, because it's more serve plus one, bang, bang. Uh, the You know, the mentality is more aggressive. Uh, Djokovic on clay. Why has he gotten better? I don't know that he has. I don't know. I mean, you know, he was pretty pretty awesome on clay in like 2011 through 2015. I I think that there was a decline for him on clay, meaning like I think there was a patch where his forehand wasn't doing enough uh, from like 20, 2017 through 2019. I thought there were three years there where his forehand wasn't doing enough. So uh, I guess he's remedied that a little bit. If you were advising team, would you tell him to change his game style? Not really. No, he needs to just figure out how to play better. Why is Karatsev having a bad, such a bad year? Because he can't find the court. Just can't find the court. And he's got a weird novelty style, and he's got a weird novelty story. So there was always a concern, I guess, with uh, with uh, Karatsev that like that it, it didn't really pass the smell test, where he took the ball like incredibly early, went for these ultra fine angles, played super aggressive uh, and then just obviously didn't have much success for years and years and years. Uh, I guess like I-, I don't know how sustainable what he does is. But he was doing it for a long time. It wasn't three four events like it was a it was a solid. It was a solid four-month period, not including the off-season, you know, December, right? It was a solid four months where he was tearing up the challengers, got to Australia, made the semis, kept the momentum going, right? Won Doha, but hasn't been able to keep it up. Uh, Aaron Smith, no offense, Gil, I like you and look forward to your videos, but I feel you always seem to underestimate Nadal a lot. You picked him to world number five this year when he's leading the race. Uh, to lose to Herkacz, of all people, at AO22, to lose to Mehdi in the final. Um, That's referring to the Australian Open final. And now to lose in the quarters at the event he's won 13 times. Uh, You also picked him to lose in RG19 to Novak. Um, How many times does Rafa need to come back successfully from injuries to get the benefit of the doubt? Look, the way I responded to Aaron here on Twitter, he's, he's the only one I responded to, is like, you could, you could point to all those times. You could also point to all the times where I predicted him to do better than he ended up doing. And I think I I pointed to Wimbledon, 18. I said he'd beat Djokovic pre-tournament and during uh, and before the match. I said he'd beat Djokovic. Uh, you can look at uh, Rome just last week. You can look at Roland Garros in uh, last year in 2021 where I, I picked him. Um, and then... I think there was there one more. I was thinking, oh yeah, Australian Open nineteen, right where I, I thought he'd beat Djokovic before that final. Like you can pick up plenty, and that's just focusing on the Nadal Djokovic thing, right? Uh, you can you can think of so many times where where I've missed both ways, not to mention the times I've gotten it right. But uh, so yeah, I I just don't I don't think there's really a pattern, and if there were, I would I would adjust. But also like what he did in at the start of this year was miraculous. Um, I, I'm, I wasn't the only one who was caught by surprise and Nadal was surprised too. So I don't take too much shame in it. Uh, but you know, it's usually health stuff, right? At what point does it make sense for a player and coach to go their separate right ways? I.e. Muguruza and Conchita Martinez. I mean, yeah, it's been, it's been bad, but like you can have a Ketsmanovic situation there. Uh, Ketsmanovic and now and hooked up and the results were atrocious, and they stuck together, and then it paid off. Uh, it's time to split with your coach when you stop believing in the things that they're saying. Plain and simple. I know that's not an answer, but that's the only answer. What can women's tennis do to increase fan engagement so that the world number one isn't playing in front of a half-full stadium in a final? Uh, I, I think it takes some time. I, I don't. There's nothing that women's tennis isn't doing right now uh, that seems very obvious to me, other than like the very deeply rooted systematic issues that tennis has with marketing itself. Uh, but I think the ATP has a lot of those issues too. But uh, they need to get get with the times when it comes to using YouTube and new media. I mean, the ATP does do it uh, a little bit better with like tennis TV and uh, all, all of the creative content that they produce to tell, you know, story tell a little bit more when it comes to their players. Should the Grand Slams introduce a stat like Watchability Index so it becomes easy for fans to decide what matches to look out for in the early stages of majors? I mean, that's kind of the job for broadcast partners. Uh, so, no, I don't, I don't know that that would be a great use of resources. Uh, your thoughts on Alcaraz, Djokovic, matchup on all surfaces? Not going to do all surfaces, but for Clay, uh, it's it's what I said at the start, which is that he needs to figure out what to do on the ad side with that kick serve for Alcaraz and he needs to get past the serve plus one of Alcaraz. If Djokovic is able to survive the serve plus one, uh, I just think that his baseline consistency can be a huge asset on clay against Carlos, but he needs to survive that first in order for that to really uh, come into play. Then Steven asked me, uh, do you have any data on which major Produces the most first-round defeats for seeded players. No, I don't have that. I'm not sure. Apologies for that. All right. That does it for Twitter. Let's get back to YouTube. That Gooner asked me, could you talk a bit about grip changes that happen within points? Why are the, What are the most common ones? What, uh, why are they needed? And is there a grip change that players frequently get wrong slash miss time slash forget? Plus anything else that springs to mind? The only real like grip change when it comes to decision making is are you using your forehand or backhand drive grip or are you switching to continental grip uh or if you use a different slice grip you're you're weird but if you do that then uh are you using your slice grip which is the same as your volley grip um and usually the same for both your forehand or your backhand it's your slice grip so that's the only thing that comes with... That's the only area where there's a grip change. And, uh, I mean, players do it in their sleep. So, and it's it's subconscious. You don't even think about it. But as soon as you see the ball come off your opponent's racket, you, you make a decision generally, am I hitting over this? Am I hitting topspin? Or am I slicing? Um and that dictates your grip change. The only shot where the grip change is really kind of complicated is with the drop shot, where you're actually trying to usually start with your drive grip, and then you are changing to your slice grip. And the timing of that and the disguise of that, that's what becomes difficult. And what's interesting about you asking this question is I'm pretty sure with Alcaraz uh, that there's no grip change. Now, he has an Eastern forehand grip, which is closer to Continental. That gives him the ability to do that. You cannot have a an extreme grip and not change your grip and then hit the drop shot. It doesn't work. You, you can't do it. Um but if you have an eastern grip, you can do that, and I think that's a big reason why Alcaraz's drop shot is disguised so well is because he doesn't really have to change grips. Um, I see a quick question in the live chat about what I'm drinking. That this is just black, black coffee, delicious black coffee. Um, after his Rome victory. Don't you think Novak is now the second greatest clay court player behind Rafa and tied with Borg? We talked about this uh, on three with uh, Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy, and we both kind of uh, we all said no at the moment. I mean, you know, you have to you have to win. I think more than two Roland Garroses to compete with uh, with Borg's six, um, and I think that number. You know, Novak doesn't need to get to six, I don't think, to be maybe in Borg's territory when it comes to clay court stuff. But um, he probably need, would need to win four. Uh, I think four is the number that Joel said, and I kind of defer to him on on things like this. If we're being completely honest, uh, now the one thing that Novak, if if he does win another Roland Garros, he'll be the only player to win each one three times. And when it comes to now, look, surface homogenization has made it easier but when it comes to like who's the greatest all-court player of all time that might be a, a good kind of feather in Djokovic's cap all right this one from adrian hey Gil, uh you asked me blah 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 to ask this again okay one one of the things you almost always say about a new up-and-coming player is that they're a clean ball striker as someone with no playing experience uh how hard is it to become a pro without being a clean ball striker such as uh such that it seems like such a valuable trait are there any past or current players that you wouldn't call clean ball strikers it that it's a hilarious question that i love because maybe it's like a crutch right and you you never want those to be you never want to have words that you just always throw out uh which like I think when it comes to like draft analysis, there are some words, there are buzzwords that you always hear whenever you're watching a like an NBA or an NFL draft. Like, oh, he's got a high motor uh, is one. Anyway, with clean ball striking, that's just about centering the ball, like putting the ball in the center of your strings and timing it properly. That's really what it's about. Uh, now, pros are mostly excellent at this. So your your observation is pretty much correct that most players are going to be great ball strikers. There are some players, however, especially on particular strokes, that get to the tour maybe as great servers, great athletes with tremendous movement, um, really good intangibles and and a a good mental game. Uh, Maybe they're good volleyers that, from the baseline, tend to mishit the ball a lot or miss the center of the strings and not strike the ball as cleanly. Um, And the player who comes to mind, who I always talk about their athleticism and what great shape they're in and how dangerous they are in best of five is Marton Fucevic. You know, he's someone who maybe isn't the cleanest ball striker always. Sometimes he's on, sometimes he's off, but that's just an example of a player who maybe I wouldn't throw that out as a compliment to them uh, because I think while they have... While Fucevic has a lot of great assets, uh, a lot of things that I appreciate about his game, so many of those being physical tools, uh, the, the ball striking can sometimes be less consistent. Uh, what are the clear markers of a player that has reached their development their developmental ceiling? How do you as an analyst decide whether or not a weakness is something that a player can still improve on, or something that is simply out of their range of talents? That's really tough. Um, first of all, it's comparing other players. Like, have other players done it? Like, I know, I know players improve their serve throughout their careers. Usually, a lot better than they improve other things. I'm always harder on mental, easier on physical. Why? Because the man upstairs has a lot to do with what kind of athlete you are. Your fast twitch muscle fibers. Even your cardio, right? Like Cam Norrie's got big lungs. Now that's just an oddball uh, example, but you know he's got great cardio. A lot of that has to do with how he was born. Um, but how fast you are, how strong you are, how big you are, a lot of that is just genetics. So I try not to be, unless it's clear that someone can, uh, a player can do more to help themselves. I try not to be like, well, this guy's got to get faster, right? I'll point out if they don't move well, how do they need to design their game around that to maximize with the mental stuff, the decision-making, the shot selection. I I feel like you can always be better mentally. You can always work on that. And I'm always a little bit more, more critical of that. When it comes to like tennis skills, you have to make a judgment. Like, I don't know that Andre Rublev is ever going to have buttery, soft feel and incredible variety. I don't think that's in him. So that's why I've never been like, gee, Rublev. I've never been like, you know, Rublev's got to get better at net. Like, this is this is ridiculous. This is holding him back. Come on, Andre. I'm, I'm just not there because I don't know if that's in him. I don't think that'll ever be him. So I focus more on what Andre Rublev can, can control. I, I think he can improve his second serve, and I have good evidence that he can because his first serve is good. His first serve averages in the 125s. So why is his second serve averaging below 90 miles per hour? I know that it can be closer to 100. I know he has that in him, just as an example. All right, I'm going to try to get through these. Uh, next ones will be pretty quickly. I don't want to go over an hour 10. This one's from Max. Gil, what's been your favorite slash least favorite tennis outfit in 2022? Look, what are you doing, Adidas? What are you doing? I mean, this is ridiculous. This has been a terrible year of Adidas, okay? Uh, from, like, Maria Sakari, what she was wearing with, like, it looked like fried eggs on her dress, uh, and then there was this print that also the women were wearing, um, and I'll get I'll get to the men. I'll get to the men. They have had bad ones too. Uh, this print, but this skirt that the women were wearing that was just cut in such a weird spot on on it just didn't look good at all. It the skirt went up, it was like high waisted, and it looked terrible, and it had this weird, very busy and loud print on it. A lot of colors. The print was fine, maybe, but the, the dress looked really bad. Uh, and then for the men, uh, you had these poop shorts. The shorts, they looked like there was... It looked like there was poop on the back of the shorts, okay? Because there was there was brown in that area. Brown. Terrible. And now, these hieroglyphics. What are they doing with these hieroglyphics? I don't, like... Awful. They've made good stuff in the past. I I know they have it in them. All right. So, I mean, Adidas, it's not a bad company, not a bad brand. They're just having a rough year, in my opinion. All right, from uh, Renato. Hi, Gil. You mentioned one of your videos that Nori's serve wouldn't be very effective on clay because it's a slice serve. Doesn't Nadal... Mostly hit slice serves, don't you think? Rafa's serve is effective on clay. Um, obviously, I'm comparing these two particular players since they're both lefties. That's an own by him. Like he got me. No. Um, first of all, there's this. On the long lists of reasons why Nadal is better, uh, is is be- is best on clay. His serve being more effective is just it's not really on the list and if it is on the list it's so so far down on the list um it's really the fact that it it's it's actually more an example like especially if you think about uh think about the Federer head to head for example it's more an instance of you know his serve for most of his career the the main function of it is just to start the point and more and more so start the point with the forehand uh, that it's really the fact that he can get into every return game. That's the difference on clay. It's not, it's not that his serve gets more effective. In fact, the numbers are of course down as they are for everyone on clay Uh, Nadal. And I, I, you know, you can look at Nadal's first serve points, one percentage on clay. It's much lower than hard and grass. Um, Again, this is true for all players, Um, the only players who serve is going to be more effective on clay is a player who hits exclusive click kick because, uh, those players might be less attackable when it comes to their serve. So a player like, uh, like Marco Cecchinato or, or Pedro Martinez or a young Dominic team before he matured and got other serves, um, I don't know, or a player like, uh, yeah, I mean, most players have other serves, but uh, yeah, players who hit only kick, those are maybe the only players whose serves are actually going to be better on clay. Then other than that, everybody's serve is going to be less effective. So I was probably talking about Nori um, because I think that Nori can really use his serve to get him free points, and I think that is actually important in in his game. That's not important in Nadal's game. What's important in Nadal's game is that he crushes that first forehand. Nori doesn't have. Nori just doesn't have the uh, the ability to to do that, and therefore I think things get uh, a little bit tricky for him on clay with just how how hard it is for him to get easy points. Nori's forehand is also it's getting bigger and bigger, but obviously it's miles away from Nadal. Um, okay, this is one that got a lot of likes. Why does no one... Okay, this question is basically, why does nobody moonball Djokovic? Why does no one use the fact that Djokovic is uh, is a player parasiting on other players' p- pace tactically? I mean, of course, he can play offensively, but he rarely does so until he's set up a point for aggression. He rarely does this on his own. Uh, okay, only Monfils has done it. Wouldn't a clean ball striker be able to use the tactic of counterpunching Djokovic? I'm shortening it, but that's kind of what he's saying. Because he's saying that nobody can play aggressive other than like Vavrinka on a really good day. Um, nobody can play aggressive and hit Djokovic off the court. So why not just, you know, play super passive and take pace off your ball? the The problem with that is, first of all, like, I mean, you're just gonna run forever and ever and ever. You're gonna run. So much, like Monfils probably gassed out in that match. Let me guess, it was in the U- at the U.S. Open. Okay, I don't remember that. What match he's talking about? Monfils probably got tired and lost. Uh, yeah, like if you're gonna if you're gonna just try to counterpunch against Djokovic, first of all, his pace generation is off of his forehand. I still think it's too good to actually do that against. Um, but and yeah. I mean, he, he's also, yeah, but he's so consistent and he's so precise and he's so good at moving the ball around. Like, it's just, like, physically, physically, that sounds like a really horrible day to try to implement that game plan. Uh, do you think the goat race is becoming a two horse race at this point? This is from Swagget, uh between Novak and Rafa. And then there's a bunch of numbers. Yeah, so, like, you know that I don't want to, like, delve into the goat race, but, like, empirically and. Uh, the empirical part of the goat race definitely is, right? Unless I'm missing something, I haven't heard a lot of Federer fans uh, make uh, empirical arguments for Federer as still being the goat anymore. I feel like that that era is over. I could be mistaken, uh, but I, I think that's done. So in that case, yeah, it would be a two-person two person race at least on the empirical side and then there's other there's the uh there's the other kind of i mean look that I, I don't i don't know how much these things matter again i don't care about the goat goat debate um but yeah i guess there's other things that might be taken into account but yeah sarah gates um i'm interested in what if anything you can change about how tournaments do court assignments It seems the priorities are home hopes, top seeds, and gender parity on the show courts as opposed to what should objectively be a popcorn match or previously successful players who have fallen down the rankings. For instance, last year at Wimbledon, people were upset that Zverev versus a qualifier was on court one, while Venus Williams got shunted to court three. Uh, would you change something about situations like that, or is there nothing to be done because ticket sales were suffer? Would suffer? Well, I mean, honestly, the thing—the only thing that I would change about events is start thinking about your TV partners, um, and I wish that there was a more systematic way to do that. But like, tennis is the only sport that cares so much about the live viewing experience, where the money is in TV, and this morning, Osaka and Anisimova. We're on at 2 A.M. in the United States, which which seems like I don't know if I'm being, you know, I don't know if I'm being like overly ethnocentric here, uh, when it comes to or, or American bias here. Uh, but like that seems like a terrible decision to me, objectively. That 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 feels like you are you are, you know, kicking your American television partners in the nuts by taking what would be their highest rated match of the day an american versus naomi osaka who has incredible mainstream appeal here and to make that 2 a.m west coast time 5 a.m east coast time that seems like a terrible decision um but also to put that in general to put that on stadium two at 11 a.m local time also seems like a terrible decision Ultimately, no complaints, really, or or no ideas. No ideas about how scheduling can be done better. Uh, If someone comes back from the future and says that Zverev or Berrettini won one slam before 2024, who do you think it would be? That's so easy, Zverev. He's a better—he's just a a more complete player. Uh, Offense, defense, neutral. You know, Berrettini's really just offense. Uh, He's a way better mover. Uh, He's he's more balanced. Um, I mean, Berrettini—hey— if you put Berrettini's mental on Zverev's skill set, now you have a really, really good player, right? You have a better player than, than what Zverev is uh, because Berrettini is clutch as heck. So clutch. Um, let's... Do I want to end on this? Potentially. Potentially ending on this. Uh, from Nicholas von Schantz. Given the big three's extraordinary achievements, it's somewhat surprising that none of them ascended to number one in the rankings very young. Nadal and Federer being 22, Djokovic being 24. Of course, each of them had their fair share of roadblocks, including each other. Alcaraz just turned 19. What potential roadblocks do you see ahead of him? And do you think that he could surpass Leighton Hewitt? as the youngest ever number 1 which would be 20 years and 8 months. So right now he's 19 and 1 month or what 19 and 3 weeks Alcaraz. So he has a year and he has a year and 7 months. That's a long time. That's a long time for him to wow, he's actually on good pace to do that. Uh well, look, Nadal was a late bloomer. Djokovic was a late bloomer, and uh, Nadal just had Federer, you know, in his prime years of uh, his most dominant years to, to contend with. So, what roadblocks do I see? I mean, look, if Djokovic doesn't play a tighter schedule, or sorry, a busier schedule, which I don't think he's going to do, I mean, that weakens his ability to stay at number one. Which, by the way, I don't think he even cares that much about anymore. That, that really weakens it. Now, if... So then you get down to, like, who else? Uh, I think Nadal faces... You know, Nadal's main issue is he's not playing full schedules really either. And he's struggling to stay healthy for entire seasons at a time. You know, and that's not just this year. That's going back... That's going back since 2018. You could go back to 2016, and that's been a problem. Um, Medvedev is not an all-surface player. Tsitsipas is really not an all-surface player. Alcaraz will be. I think he. I, I think he can do it. That's my uh, my short answer. Um, I will answer one of these, not both, uh, from Racket Talk. Uh, Hey Gil, two questions about Alcaraz. Do you think that time off from Rome was a smart thing to do? Uh, It would give him the extra energy to compete uh, well here at RG. I really love that decision because it's also an investment into Wimbledon too. And why play Rome when you already have the titles to draw confidence from? Uh, It's a tough couple months here, and I think everyone should do this if they can. Yeah, He also played Barcelona because he's Spanish. Or maybe just because he wanted to play. Um, awesome decision, awesome decision. Uh, but he also had an ankle injury, so let's not act like everything was dandy physically and that he just decided to take some rest. Uh, the 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 ankle that he rolled against Djokovic did swell up, was bothering him Sunday morning. That which he did say, but ultimately the fact that he didn't try to play through it, which I also think he could have, is uh, is great. You know he their team plans long term, long game and that is going to serve them really, really well moving forward. It, it, it's gonna it's gonna be a great thing for them uh, for the future. All right, so that is it. That is all I got um oh I I just saw a comment that said Osaka said that the early start time, was about the Japan time difference that they would get to see her at 6 p.m. Okay, well, I mean, could we could we compromise between US and Japan and make it like second on anyway. Okay, that I'm glad to see that. Uh, so maybe it's just I'm I'm a biased American and that was a bad take, maybe. Um Yeah that's all I got uh, what do I have to say uh, you can join become a member two dollars a month to support the channel long term appreciate that you can follow me on Twitter at Gil underscore gross uh, you can check the link in the description um, to oh was there a super chat that I missed uh, I will answer the the super chat if you tell me what it was before I sign off here. Um, post-match video is coming tomorrow. I, I might, I don't know what I'm covering tomorrow, but I'm probably going to cover one match. Waiting on this super chat because, uh, I do want to, I do want to answer that, but I didn't see it originally. Oh, you know what? I just found it. Do you think that Federer losing his top seed spot will hurt his chances to make a deep run in a big tournament even if he can play at a high level. Do you think Federer It's never ideal, right? And it can really hijack Yeah, I mean it can make it makes things more difficult. There's no doubt about that. Um I'm trying to like add something here to this question. You know to, to try to to give you a little bit more but I don't know how much I have. I mean I, I do think that it hurt Murray a lot for example, uh, where, where his draws were not good. Uh, with that being said, like if Fetter's results are you know anywhere near what they what he would probably want them to be from coming back then like it, it definitely wouldn't take him long to get back into uh into seeding but uh yeah I think that's always a challenge a legitimate challenge because then you can't gain momentum you're going to have some weeks where you're traveling somewhere and you're playing players who maybe you're not really ready to play uh and 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 you're losing uh really early on and you know it's something that it's something that um Nadal and Djokovic throughout most of their comebacks they haven't really None of them have really been injured long enough to really deal with that in a in a extreme manner. You know, Nadal's injuries they haven't put him out that long for the most part, where his ranking hasn't dipped too much. Uh, and for jo- for Djokovic, uh, that's been true as well. The best example I can think of, though, for Federer in 2017, when he came back in that Australian Open, uh, he had a, he had that he had a pretty brutal draw, right? Australian Open. 2017. Um, just gonna remind myself. So in the third round, he played Burdich That's the 10 seed, because uh, because Federer was the 17 seed. Then in the fourth round, he played Nishikori, the 5 seed. He got an easy quarterfinal against Misha Zverev, um, and then from there, you expect to play tough players. So so it did happen. He's contended with this. Uh, yeah, definitely a big factor. All right, leaving it at that. Thanks everybody for watching. Um, hope I, uh, brightened up your, uh, Monday night, Tuesday morning for any of you, maybe perhaps, uh, hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.